everybody basically agrees, I wish we could do something about this, but the system says this is how we have to proceed. And welcome to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Yes, welcome back, everybody. It's great to be chatting about another script this week. Great to be... The the, the highlight of this week, I feel like, is the finding of new things for the podcast, at least. Oh, my gosh, (laughs) is that true? Yeah, I, I don't know how I would have known about this play other than that you had found it for consideration for the podcast and we put it in because it's it's something different it's you know it's the kind of script we like to talk about it's got a nice variation in terms of our rhythm for the season but i didn't really know much about it and i was absolutely enthralled by this piece of theater i mean i yeah. was just amazed yeah, you're really drawn into the uh, the reenactment nature of it, and and uh, yeah, I, I I was I was glad that it came across my path as well. I subscribe to this is not a sponsor. This is just kind of a cool thing for people who read scripts. Uh, I subscribe to the Dramatist Play Service like you know subscription box, and so they just send you like eight scripts every couple months or so. And this was one of them, and it was a great read. And I'm excited to get to talk about it today. We're talking, of course, about the courtroom today, which is subtitled an a reenactment of of one woman's deportation proceedings by Ariane Moyed or Moya. Ah, so close. Uh, Ariane Moaid. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You will know Ariane Moaid mostly as an actor. We'll talk about that when we get to the context section, but his assembly of this piece of theater. And, and since I discovered this play, I'm stealing from my own context section later, I guess, but I looked into the theater that he co-founded, which was the devising company behind this piece and discovered a number of other really fascinating works. So although Ari Moid is a tremendous actor, recently well-awarded actor, which again we will talk about, he has also got, it seems to me, uh, just on the front end of learning about him, just uh, a really creative, sharp theatrical mind. And I mean, boy, is that on display in this script. Yeah, it was cool to read a play of his after seeing him in a couple different films and and TV shows and things like that. So yeah, super cool to kind of connect the dots there. And super cool to be kind of reintroduced to a different form of theater or uh, another way that theater can show up in the world um, as like a way to kind of uh, communally tell stories that maybe wouldn't be told necessarily. Maybe maybe wouldn't have been uh, sort of... uh, at first, at first glance, been like given the chance to be in a TV show or something like that, or to be kind of communally told. So exciting to get to engage theater in that way as well. Yeah. So if if you don't know already, the courtroom is a piece of verbatim theater. We talked about verbatim theater before on this podcast, but this is a sort of unique kind of verbatim theater. I would call it a subgenre in the genre of verbatim theater, which is courtroom drama. There are other courtroom dramas that are fictional 
I mean, the, the courtroom as a site in which drama takes place and thus can be staged is is done throughout theater history. I mean, it's a big time. Of course, like even Merchant of Venice, right, has a big courtroom scene at the end. Courtroom dramas have always been as part of what the stage is and what film is, the dramatic storytelling. But this, as an example of verbatim courtroom drama, is a fascinating concept because, of course, I think everybody knows that the difference between like a staged fictional courtroom and a real courtroom, there's like an enormous gap. (laughs) The, yeah. the level of drama and characterization and personality that you put into a courtroom when you write a fictional one is just nothing like a regular courtroom. Yeah, yeah, very, very different. Lots, lots more. Um, uh, I, well, I think I'm just, I think I'm just going to say yes to that, yes and amen to that, because I think a lot of the sort of like specifics of why it's different and how it's different do come out in this script. Um, and and are kind of well uh, well written and advised upon at the start of this script. So I think I'm going to save most of my my uh, kind of specifics of why that's so cool um, for for once we actually get into the meat of the script itself. Because I, I think uh, the script itself advises well to note that difference. I think that's very wise. We almost started having the conversation about this. <laughs> we, we almost jumped right in. But before we do, uh, as we always love to do at the start of these episodes, we wanted to thank our patrons for being a part of making No Script possible. Thank you all so much to everyone who has headed over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and been a part of making this show run. We love getting to have these conversations. We love getting to find new scripts, have conversations uh, with each other and with all of you out there in podcast land and the patrons at patreon.com slash no script podcast make that happen the show isn't free to run it's 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 a labor of love for us but there are plenty of costs associated with it and the patrons make the show happen so if you're looking for a way to we both- can say that for sure now that tax season has just <laughs> it's passed coming, yeah, it's <laughs> or i guess yeah you're right we're right in it it's, we're, we're uh, right in it uh, I, I, think. I can tell you that there are costs to run a podcast because i'm <laughs> dealing with taxes right now uh-huh yep yep So thank you all so much for making this show happen. If you're looking for a way to uh, both help out the show enormously and also just uh, to kind of invest in the community of NoScript a little bit more, Patreon's a great way to do that. We have a bunch of great stuff over there. We have access to patron-only posts. You have access to scripts ahead of time. You have uh, access to uh, all sorts of fun stuff over there. Also, just the way we try to like cultivate communication over there and conversation over there. A um, number of different tiers of membership or of patronship, lowest one being just one dollar and that one dollar over the course of a year is twelve dollars over the course of a year hopefully we, we hope that that uh that is that is a uh, kind of a low bar to to kind of just get access to the patron only stuff over there um so thank you thank you uh for entertaining the idea thanks for all those who are already over at patreon.com slash no script podcast uh we'll look forward to seeing you over there absolutely big thank you and now back to the script there we go. All righty. So, uh, Arya Moaid, of course, new playwright to the podcast. So we will do our general introduction that we try to do every time we visit a new playwright on No Script. And again, uh, Moaid is is not really known as a playwright primarily. Um, in fact, he almost does more screenwriting than playwriting, to be really frank with you. But more than all of that, Arya Moaid is an actor. 
Uh, he is uh, an, an immigrant from Iran. He was born there and moved to Chicago when he was very young. Uh, then grew up in the States, went to Indiana University, eventually moved to New York City after he graduated from Indiana University, which has, first of all, a, a remarkable theater program, if you didn't know that about Indiana University, but it does. And so he graduated from that program and then moved to New York City with his roommate from Indiana University, and they founded a theater company in New York City, an off-Broadway company called Waterwell, which if you've not heard of, check it out because they are doing unique and interesting projects. Basically, they their mission is to do these sort of unique devised productions uh, that are kind of their own total theatrical event. Uh, one example of that, besides the courtroom, is a dual-language version of Hamlet, in which Ariane Moed starred as Hamlet himself in that production. The, the mission of Waterwell, as, it say, as it's stated, is to deliberately wrestle with complex civic questions. And there's a lot to that short little phrasing, but I think the, the issue of complex civic questions, certainly this, this theater experience that they created meets the bar for that. I mean, this, this is an experience about the prosecution uh, situation in the immigration system in the United States, and they wrestle with what that system did to a particular individual, as Jackson will tell you about. As an actor, uh, Arya Moaid, Moaid, apologize. He, you will have potentially recognized him from the Marvel movies. You can uh, look up a picture of him online, and you may recognize that he has a sort of reoccurring agent character that he plays in a, a couple of TV shows and a movie so far. Uh, and I suspect, as we're headed into this new stretch of Marvel movies, that he will be a regular figure. Uh, but he is most known as an actor right now for the TV show, the HBO show Succession, where he has won an award for his portrayal of Stewie on that TV show. More interestingly for me is his stage career in New York, which is also fairly robust. Um, and he has starred in a number of productions by one of my favorite playwrights and a playwright we've covered a number of times on this show, including both of the plays I'm about to name, uh, Rajiv Joseph. Rajiv Joseph's play Bengal Tiger in a Baghdad Zoo was a Tony-nominated um, Broadway show at one point with Robin Williams as the tiger and Arya Moaib was in that production. He played Musa who is the uh, translator in that production of Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo and was nominated for a Tony himself for his portrayal in that show. Then he goes on to be in another production by Rajiv Joseph, my favorite Rajiv Joseph play that I've read so far, which is Guards at the Taj. Uh, he played Babur in that production, and he won an Obie Award for his portrayal. In 2017, you may know the play The Humans by Stephen Karam. We've covered that on the show as well. He was Richard, the boyfriend-fiancé character, in the Roundabout production of The Humans. And, and there's many more besides. We can never cover the whole careers of these folks, but just to give you a little sense of their spot in the theater world. The courtroom, as this 
it's a script in the sense that it was published by dramatists and we have a copy of the script and you can read it and get the rights to it and perform it, which people have, as I'll talk about. But it's really more interesting to me to think about it as a theater event because that's really how it gained its fame. In, in 2019, the Waterwell Company, uh, Lee Sunday Evans and Ariane Moaid, they put together this idea for a verbatim courtroom drama about the immigration system that they were going to perform in site-specific productions across New York City. And it went on to be so popular that they extended the run a number of times, getting to the point where they were performing a, at a different site each month in New York City across the more than year-long run of this show. And if you've kept track of the years I just said, you would know January 2019, and it ran for more than a year, which means it ran up to the pandemic, which eventually closed the production. Who knows what would have happened at that point? Uh, here's just some of the sites at which this play was performed. And, and this is actually talked about in the script, and we may get to that, although we'll see. There's so much to talk about. Uh, the Thurgood Marshall Courthouse, Fordham Law School, St. Mark's Church, Judson Memorial Church, the New York Bar Association, Cooper Union's Historic Great Hall, Cardazzo Law School, and many more besides. In the script, Moeed talks about the, the right site for this play is something with a sense of grandeur and tradition and institution. So you see a lot of churches, courthouses, law schools in that particular list. Uh, I assume because the pandemic interrupted uh, this incredibly interesting, unique theater event, the next thing that came out was a film. Uh, it was the same director. Uh, and if, if you see the trailer for the film, I really want to watch the movie. And it, they are calling it a film rather than like a recording of a stage production. But it does appear in the trailer that it is something to the effect of... It, well, let me say it this way. It reads more of a theater production than a film in the sense of they, they still do the non-traditional casting that I'm sure that Jackson will talk about. The set looks like a constructed set rather than like shot on location. Um, but they, they are marketing it as a film. It went to several film festivals. It looks absolutely incredible and interesting. I can't wait to watch it. That was in 2022. Um, and then it, uh, the other production that I have managed to see that I thought was notable is taking place in Minneapolis in this summer, this summer 2023. If you are in Minneapolis, you should check out this production at the Jungle Theater. I think the Jungle Theater is doing a site-specific production. So you'll want to see where it's taking place in Minneapolis. But I, I'm sure I've done this before, but I can't quite remember another time where as I was doing this research and I saw an upcoming production, I was immediately like, who do I know in Minneapolis? Who do I know that needs to see this because it's such a unique theater event? And so I ended up texting some folks that I know from Minneapolis and saying, like, this is coming in June. You, if you're around, you're on vacation or something, go see it because it is unique and interesting. I think it, it'll be very memorable. So there, there's a little bit of the life of the courtroom as it grew up. Nice. Yeah, Minneapolis is my old stomping ground, so it's cool to hear that it's that it's that's coming to there. Might might have to arrange a trip home, as it were. Um, so uh, I'm going to jump into some of the synopsis for this play a little bit. It's worth noting at the beginning of this that in, in a normal courtroom drama, I would be saying I don't understand a whole lot about. <laughs> 
about courtrooms and and law and and things like that. We're going to be the but but the, the, this play specifically, there's quite a bit of uh, legality in here. It's very accessible legality, but I'm going to do my best to kind of sum up um, what occasionally is quite quite real life. Uh, sort of terms for us here as we as we sort of jump into this conversation. Um, the the uh, scope of this play is uh, is kind of focused on one woman, uh, Elizabeth Keithley, who is a Filipina immigrant, and her case before a number of different courts over this course of. Uh, 14 years, um, the scenes, the scenes span, uh, 14 years of information at least. Um, and, uh, uh, let's see, nine years of actual time, um, in, in, in the play itself. The first, uh, act of the play takes place in the immigration court of, in November of 2008 in, uh, the, the, in Chicago, um, and this uh, court is here to hear the case of Elizabeth Keithley, who uh, immigrated to or began the process of immigrating to the United States after marrying her husband, John. Um, and uh, she was going through the process. She uh, kind of was approved for the green card uh, uh process <laughs> and then uh, went to the DMV to get a driver's permit and a state ID so that she could uh, start driving and, uh, and working. Um, during that process, uh, application process. She, um, uh, the phrase is, is pretty particular. Inadvertent, inadvertently said yes to the form question of registering to vote. Um, and that uh, kind of uh, kicked off a series of events. Uh, she was kind of talked through the application. She didn't fill it out herself, um, but uh, talked through the application by someone. And uh, that kicked off a process of her receiving a voter's registration card. And then she subsequently voted in uh, a, a midterm election uh, for a congressional candidate which uh, triggered a response from uh, her green card process because she was not yet a citizen at the time of the election. And so she uh, was uh, denied her green card access and uh, kind of set on the road towards being deported. So this um, first scene of the play- Because there is this law that just says very simply, if you are not a citizen- and you vote, you are no longer eligible to become a citizen. There's a number of complexities on that that they get into in the play, but at the core of it, that's the law. It's most simple form. If you're not a citizen and you vote, you're no longer eligible to become a citizen. Right. Yep. So this 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 first scene is at the immigration court in Chicago, um, which is uh, where uh, Elizabeth Keithley is near, and she uh, the the kind of she she's a main character in this scene. Her lawyer Richard Hannes is another main character in this scene. Uh, Gregory Guckenberger is the prosecuting attorney um, from the attorney general, and then there's the judge Craig Zerb Zerb uh, uh, who is uh, overseeing the the. The proceedings. Uh, there's also her uh, Elizabeth husband's John makes an appearance in this scene as well. And basically, the the broad strokes of this of this scene is uh, both. Um uh, both parties argue their case. Um, the prosecutor argues that the law is pretty clear. She voted um, and is thus inadmissible for her green card as a result of the law being written the, the way it is. Um, her uh, her defense attorney, uh, Hannes, argues um, a very particular clause, um, which is, I had it open and everything, entrapment by estoppel is how I'm going to... Um, pronounce uh, that that line and that is essentially she was led by someone that she deemed a credible governmental uh, authority 
to say yes to uh, this particular question about do you want to vote? Um, and uh, because because it was asked of her, because she had just shown her Filipino uh, visa and her citizenship from there, she thought it wouldn't make sense for them to ask it any other way unless it was an option available to her. Um, and so the, the argument kind of persists from the defense um, that she was led through it um, uh, erroneously, and it wasn't in fact her fault that she eventually, uh, and then when she received the voting registration, also she just assumed that it was okay because of uh, because why would she receive it otherwise? Um, and so that's that's the main defense of the of the defense is that uh, that uh, she she is not to blame for her actions. Um, that uh, is kind of contended by both the prosecution and the judge um, because especially because this. Um, uh, entrapment by estoppel is uh, only used in criminal cases. It's it's criminal law, not civil law. And so there's some uh, contention with that. Um, the scene goes back and forth. You get, uh, there's an, a number or a good stretch of this act that uh, Elizabeth is actually on the stand and trying to tell her own story. She um, is trying to defend herself. Uh, some of the legal jargon is a little bit much for her. English is her second language, although she is quite, she understands and is quite fluent in English. Um, some of the jargon gets a little bit complicated. And then her husband, John, steps up. And basically what, what you learn in this scene is, uh, as Hannes has uh, illuminated for, for the court and through his research as well, is that these are folks who just got caught in, in, in a mire um, and are, have been trying to do everything right. They, they met via like a, a like connection points and they had a long kind of dating relationship, eventually got married and she had come over. She had jumped through all the hoops of the immigration process. And this this like one technicality um, is what's preventing her from becoming a U.S. citizen, rightfully so. Everyone everyone who could possibly check off on, on her being uh, kind of welcomed into citizenship status did. It's just this one thing that happened as a result of applying for a driver's permit. Ultimately, this first case um, or this first appeal is uh, uh, wh while uh, the the intent the uh, or the uh, nefarious intent is not exactly the legal phrase, but there, the, the judge rules that there was no nefarious intent in her voting. However, that as a result of her voting, the law is clear that she um, is no longer admissible as a citizen and must be our uh, uh, decrees <laughs> that she must be voluntarily deported. Or if she doesn't within a certain amount of time, she will be um, taken out of the country by, by the authorities. Um, uh, long past that amount of time, three years later, um, we, uh, have act two, which is, uh, at the seventh circuit court of appeals, um, where Hannes is once again arguing, uh, and has appealed this case, continued to appeal this case over the years and has gotten it to the seventh circuit court of appeals. And essentially, um, uh, he is, he is still arguing this same, uh, the same argument that entrapment by estoppel is, is able to be applied to this particular case. Um, he's brought before three judges, and uh, th they continue to kind of have this debate around uh, whether or not this is applicable in this particular case, and whether or not the um, uh, citizenship process is functioning as it should. Um, uh, because uh, multiple times, Hannes brings up and the judges bring up that the citizenship process law should be um, again, I'm going to I'm going to sum up this phrase. There's, it's a particular phrase, but the law should be applied or bent in support of 
the the alien or the applicant to try to yeah basically like if there's any gray area we should favor on the side of earnest well-meaning people who are trying to immigrate to the United States i'm not sure i knew that that was sort of the case precedent for yeah. immigration law so that was just some interesting legal facts i learned yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the the prosecution at this stage is headed up by Margaret O'Donnell, um, and uh, you have you have the uh, in, interesting to note the difference between the two. The first the first uh, Gregory Guckenberger has like a pretty notable prop, and it's a big old cart of of cases that he's trucking around with him. Um, as soon as you wrap up the first scene, he like kind of slides this one off and he opens up the next folder and then goes to the next proceeding versus this, uh, this, uh, seventh circuit court of appeals, very different prosecution. Uh, she's from a government agency of some kind. Um, and, uh, is not as like, uh, d doesn't seem, doesn't seem to have the same caseload as this first one did. Um, and uh, so, so this this process kind of goes off. There's some more art. There's some more argument back and forth, specifically around uh, them wanting to be sure. The judges wanting to be sure that Hannes has an argument for applying this uh, entrapment by estoppel to a civic case or a civil a civil lawsuit. Eventually, they go into recess and they come back uh, and uh, support support uh, Elizabeth. Keithley, Whew, there we go. Um, <laughs> my, my brain stopped working for a second there. Um, and um, and and uh, Hannes's argument. They send the uh, appeal back to the immigration court with the recommendation that they uh, uh, remove the the uh, remove uh, the 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 pause on her ability to to apply for the green card. The uh, last scene is in 2017, six years later, um, uh, where she, uh, uh, Elizabeth is attending a, um, a citizenship ceremony. Um, and she, uh, basically the whole scene is just a judge doing the citizenship ceremony, um, and, uh, swearing, swearing, uh, in a whole bunch of new citizens. So the, the ending of the story, uh, essentially is that through the, through the work of, uh, through, through the resilience of Elizabeth, uh, Keithley and Richard Hannes, um, they, they managed to, uh, uh, appeal this enough times that it, uh, that it turns its way around and she is able to join as a citizen again, over 14 years after the, after her uh, having married John and moving to the United States. Now, that's that's just the action of the play. There's there's so much more going on in the play on on all sides of it. <laughs> um, uh, this this uh, the the play has a kind of lengthy um, notes on casting at the beginning, which uh, Jacob referred to at the, at the beginning. There's a kind of a non-traditional, or uh, I forget the phrase that you used, um, but. Uh, uh, hey. Is it cool, Jax? If I just I have the little snippet cut out, yeah, just go read for the it. note on casting. So they they highlight the four what they call like the major legal roles in the play. There's lots of roles because a courtroom has lots of people that muck around and make things work or not work depending on right. your experience of the, of, of the legal world. Uh, but uh, there are they the the script calls for there to be sort of the four central legal characters, and then this is the note about that. We strongly encourage you to cast three out of these four roles as women, so there is a clear aspect of the casting that is working against the reality of who those people were in real life. The tension between pronouns in the transcripts and the gender of the actors creates a subtle but visceral experience for the audience that the text is a court transcript that has not been altered. The disparity also communicates that the audience is seeing a reenactment of a real event that the production acknowledges has already taken place. 
Yeah, yeah, and and notably those those four actors that they're referring to are Richard Hannis, the defense lawyer, Gregory Guckenberger, the DHS lawyer, the initial prosecuting attorney, um, uh, Judge Craig Zerb, who is the the first judge that we interact with. Over half of the play is that that first act of the play. Um, and then uh, Judge Frank Easterbrook, who is kind of the main voice once they get to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. So uh, pretty pretty notable uh, uh, main character roles in all of those, and it's it's very interesting to kind of talk about. Uh, I'm, I'm, we're, we'll 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 get to a good a good conversation about how this play kind of uh, uh, derails reality a little bit, even as it is a transcript in some in some in 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 in, in the realness of that word. It's a transcript of these of these happenings. Um, uh, the other the other notable thing that I think I want to mention before we kind of uh, embark on our on our typical unscripted conversation um, is uh, there's there's a pretty great note at the end of it in the production notes about what is a reenactment um, in which uh, the, 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 the it gives a lot of great advice about how the original cast kind of pulled off this we're we're doing a transcript and it and it feels different. <laughs> Um, and one one tactic was actually reading the text rather than performing a memorized version of this play. Um, it kind of uh, accesses that 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 sense of uh, a, a lawyer, a lawyer, any any group of lawyers or judges at various stages of preparedness trying to engage in a convincing argument. Um, the pace at which the actors uh, performed the reading matched more closely that pace than it did with them memorized and performing it. Um, there's also advice to avoid drama and uh, and include the accuracy and mistakes of the original transcript into the uh, the production, as well as the the stuff that Jacob mentioned at the beginning, the the um, the place of the play in a courtroom, found spaces in churches, in these sort of like places that are uh, typically thought of as institutions, provide that sort of like backdrop of of uh the f for the play and it kind of uh brings you into the reality of it while also engaging in a piece of drama and engaging what the drama is trying to um make you think about there you go there's my there's my brief sum up of the action of the play the action is fairly straightforward it's court proceedings um but then also the 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 sort of uh the the form of this this production as well which is a very theatrical form to be engaging in a very like real transcript of events. Yeah, and and it's interesting that they they're very specific about this being a reenactment. Um, and, and that word is, of course, used in the subtitle. And then there are all kinds of notes and thoughts about the sort of reality of that. Uh, at the very end of the script, in those notes that Jackson was talking about, this is one of the quotes, we felt strongly that we did not want to create a theatrical production in the more traditional sense. And we did not want to create a staged reading. So instead, they go through this process of sort of devising their language for a reenactment. And in a reenactment, of course, some of the idea is accuracy, is specificity. And so it is interesting to me that they have also made decisions which are deliberately against accuracy in the case of the way that the roles are cast, in the case of the fact that, as you mentioned, this is a court case that takes place over 16 years or whatever, and it takes place over 80 minutes or so in this context. At some points, like when the judges are going to render decisions, they just sort of go out of the room for a minute and come back in. When you look at the timeline at the end, you learn that like between arguments and the judge's decision is like years, 
Yeah. I mean, there's a whole time element that is edited, of course, because, you know, the play can't take place over years. I get that. But as a sort of interesting um, departure from, like, if you thought about, like, a historical blacksmith reenactment, they're, like, going to make the horseshoes right there in front of you. And this is uh, a sort of a sort of theatrical reenactment, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah, yeah, of of a very complicated proceeding. Um of and and part so so part of it is is the is the just the the act of watching the legal system work. Um and then then I think the other part of it is that realization moment. Is that moment of like, boy, we sat through 80 minutes of this and I feel like I'm a little bit lost and I'm I'm glad it wound up the way I guess it did. But then you have that landing that landing moment of, oh my gosh, this took 14 years. This took 10 years of legal proceedings. And I think that's some of the like critique that is in here. The um uh the 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 New York Times has a, a quote from their review on it on the back of my script, and it's and it says, This is uh this is theater as civic meditation. The courtroom enlists the spectators as witnesses, exhorting the Am- Americans in the room to consider what our nation is doing in our name and how. If we oppose that, we intend to stop it. As the piece follows her from one courtroom to another, what is most palpable is the suspense how deeply invested the audience becomes in the future of this gentlewoman. And, and you kind of track over the course of this many, many years, the, you know, this, this woman who's just trying, who is just trying to live here with her family, both with, uh, with John, the man she married, and also her children who are in the country with her as well. So that sort of like suspenseful, drawing out uh, of 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 uh what what are in our experience is just 80 minutes but acknowledging that it is years and years of their lives and uh makes makes for an interesting critique of how this uh justice system or the legal system works uh for 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 her and for others yeah usually in like fictional courtrooms there are much more clear like protagonists and antagonists, like someone's actions are at stake. There is a fiery prosecutor and, uh, you know, and whatever. And in this case, this, to me, this play does not have a clear, um, good, good person, bad person, protagonist, antagonist, whatever you're talking about. In fact, and I do think that this is very much, um, a, a, a very, uh, accurate, I'm just searching for a word and accurate's not quite it, but a, a really moving entrance into the legal system because this play seems to be really about everybody in the scene fighting against the legal system. I mean, it, it, <laughs> whether or not Elizabeth voted, whether or not she, she claimed to be a citizen, whether or not she broke laws, none of that is really at issue. Everybody basically agrees this is a really decent person who had this really unfortunate mistake happen. And everybody basically agrees, I wish we could do something about this, but the system says this is how we have to proceed. This is the law. It does not allow for exceptions where you just made a mistake. Or, in the case of what they're arguing, where a government official prodded you into doing this thing. Those exceptions don't exist, so there's nothing that we can do in the system. Even the prosecutor in the one scene, and then they're actually the defendant in the other scene, but that gets a little confusing. So the the person on the side of the state in both courtroom scenes is not there to, to 
bang this person into the ground to destroy their character. I mean, the, their their questions are very much establishing these are the facts. And as the government in this role, all we can do is move forward with these facts. It comes down to just like everybody agrees that she was sort of led into this by the government. But does that can we apply that defense, which is usually used in criminal proceedings to a civil proceeding? Like that's what the whole trial is about. And if that sounds boring, it is kind of. And that's yeah. sort of the point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because it's not, it's uh, even, even the scenes where that is, that becomes the focus, right? Eventually, we're past the stage of wondering what exactly the facts were. We know what the facts were. Um, eventually, you get to the stage where the the prosecuting or defending uh, a, a attorney, the one on the side of the state, um, is 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 basically saying, I just want to hear how, <laughs> how Hannes can back this up <laughs> because it's not, it's not backed up right now. The the trial law isn't there right now um, to to uh, to back up the the use of of this particular clause in a, in a civil suit. And so yeah, you definitely get. I think maybe earnest is 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 a word that could be applied to this. Like just an earnest look at a bunch of people trying to wield this unwieldy thing, which is the law, um, which, which, uh, has, has, has like real things that you got to follow really specific things that you got to follow, even though, you know, that there's, uh, even though, you know, this person just messed up and didn't do so with any sort of intent to mess up, just messed up. And so trying to, trying to make the argument of, uh, having the law work in their benefit somehow while still adhering to the law becomes the act that they're all kind of engaged in rather than fighting specifically against one or the other or against the defendant. Um, they're, they're just trying to figure out how to do so, how to proceed legally. Right. And, and, and although, of course, the lawyers in both courtroom scenes are opposed to each other in the sort of formal stricture of a courtroom, I, I have to argue this and you have to argue this and we have to sort of go back and forth on that. It, you never I get I never get the sense that this is about the lawyer on the government side really, truly believing that they desperately want this person to be dis deported, having this deep personal investment. And it's the sort of. Uh, the fact that everybody almost seems to have the same personal investment, which is like, oh my gosh, this seems to be like a really decent person who probably should be allowed to be a citizen in the United States, but we're caught in this web of systems. A number of times, like the immigration system is described as a labyrinth. And that's basically the lawyer for Elizabeth's, one of his sort of central arguments throughout in both the immigration court and the appeal court scenes. Look, these people have managed to navigate this wild, burdensome maze of a system almost perfectly. They've done everything they could right. And all that happened was that this one official somewhere along the way did not help her understand the form in the way that she needed to, which set off this chain of events. And it's just this one thing in this maze of systems. And is that really how our immigration system should work? That we put people who want to come into the United States up into a series of virtually impossible tasks and even good, decent people throw them out on their ear if they misstep on one of a long series of these tasks. Yeah, yeah, which is like so. So you kind of go on that ride for the first two acts with all these, all these, these people trying to engage that that issue of of 
you know, how do we, how do we, how do we figure out a way, <laughs> any sort of way to, to, to make this happen? And, and then you have this, the last scene, which is a really interesting scene. It's the last sort of piece that I think I'll bring up as like it, within the casting of it. Um, the, the, the play recommends that you cast a real life judge. Um, in the role of this this judge who kind of reads the uh, the, the the final scene this this final swearing in who conducts the immigration ceremony yeah the, yeah yeah, yeah. The naturalization ceremony yes um and and that includes um giving this sort of like um little speech <laughs> of of some sort or, or kind of remarks about immigration and and the script includes uh, uh, remarks by uh, judge. Denny Chin, who is a United States Courts of Appeals uh, or a judge of the United States Courts of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Um, but uh, but it, it advises you to just let the judge who you found <laughs> kind of offer remarks as as that judge would uh, at, at, at such a at such a um, at such a moment. So so that's sort of like earnestness at the end again, this sort of like really compelling at least at least uh judge denny chin's comments are really compelling about like how how glad he is to to kind of be in this moment and be able to administer this this uh this citizenship ceremony for them uh because of his own story of immigration and and how important it is and and so so you have that that really touching moment at the end too of like oh someone really really caring for these people who have jumped through so many hoops at the very end kind of uh, welcomes them into um, into their citizenship. But it's only through such a such a rigorous uh, uh, process that the process that they've gone through. Yeah. And, and, and so there are there's sort of a difference between what the script asks for and what any potential company might do. I think we are just operate under the assumption that a production company would do the things that the script asks for. Um, like we talked about the casting, casting of three women to play these, what I would imagine are historically white lawyers and judge white male lawyers and judges uh, played by women. I just assume that a production is doing that. But then there are a couple of like requests that they say there are other ways around, right? You, you have to cast an actress of uh, Asian descent to play Elizabeth and they say the the strong preference is for a Filipina actress to play Elizabeth. And so you assume that they do that. So there's sort of an earnestness and an authenticity in that representation. And then there is this thing at the end, this, this naturalization judge. This is a request by the script. They say, if, look, if you can't find a judge or you're not going to, you can cast an actor. Here's a monologue the actor could use. But it's the strong preference of the script and of Ariamoyed and, and I assume of, of the production company that you find an actual immigration judge to come and perform that naturalization ceremony or a, a reenactment of a naturalization ceremony, including those remarks. And to me, that is a... I, I'm not even sure what to make of that, truthfully. Hmm. You you have this you have these two acts where there are actors playing the lawyers and judges. Actors whom are deliberately cast in a way that is opposed to the way these positions of power would have existed during the actual trials, except for Elizabeth, who is Act, you know, who has a, an authenticity to the identity is the strong preference in that particular case. And then you have an authenticity to the identity in the sense of the immigration judge. So this 
theatrical imagining is this interesting swirl of intentional misrepresentation alongside very accurate, authentic representation. Yeah, it's a it's it's a really interesting it's 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 just fun for your brain to interact with the sort of swirl of reality in this play. Um, uh, it's it it knows it knows what it is. It knows that it's transcripts of real life events, and so it 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 pays like a respect and homage to that wherever it can. And it also welcomes you into this like just wild ride <laughs> of like, oh, I'm, I'm listening. I'm, you know, I'm watching something. I'm, I'm watching clearly an actor who uh, whose uh, pronouns were different in real life um, uh, being portrayed by someone else. Um, so that's really interesting. And then at the end, you have, you know, possibly someone you recognize from your community <laughs> stepping up that, you know, as a judge from your community, probably retired or something like that. And stepping into the, into this, this, uh, this mode at the end of the play, you also have a uh, kind of frequent moments when like a bailiff comes in and says, all rise. And they'll say it again if the audience does not rise. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's really playing with this, 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 uh, interesting question of how real is what I'm watching and how uh, uh, complicit is not quite the right word, but how in it am I um, uh, uh, that that is being asked um, uh, throughout the play and kind of getting you to question question your the the reality of your experience, the 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 presence of your experience and and your own involvement with it. Yeah, well, and and in church, just in terms of authenticity too, you you talked about in the summary that there is this suggestion for how the play is rehearsed and staged, where the actors don't actually memorize the lines. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, they like have the the script tells you that apparently when you buy the rights to the play, you get all these cue sheets that they've created for the actors to use during the course of the production. And the idea, as they describe it, is that it shouldn't seem like these people know what they're going to say next because I mean, in life, you don't know what you're going to say next. And anybody who's, who's done any acting and acting training and studying knows that one of the great hurdles to overcome in acting, and it's something that takes, you know, Meisner said 20 years to overcome, is the fact that in real life, you never know what you're going to say next. Yeah. And in acting, you've got your two-hour script memorized. Right. And that, as simple as that seems, it's a huge difference between acting and real life, and it's one of the major challenges of acting. And so in this production, they say, I tell you what, don't. Just don't know what you're going to say next. <laughs> Have it written yeah. down, and that way you will be, in truth, in engaging in the scenes, listening and responding without having now it's still foretold, right? They're not speaking extemporaneously. It's not improv, but it is truly being in a scene and not knowing what the next thing you're going to say specifically is. Well, and I, and I imagine that's like one of those fun little crossover things. It'd be cool to have a conversation with with someone who is a lawyer or, or an attorney or something like that. Because I imagine that's a very that that little bit 
um, is a very similar ground for an actor and a lawyer. Of the the lawyer, like just in this just in the scope of this play, um, the the sort of specifics that are asked for by the judges to the lawyers, like specific case law, specific examples from previous cases, um, spe- re- really specific stuff <laughs> um, uh, around uh, around this this uh, 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 this in, entrapment clause and things like that. And and while while the lawyer may may have like looked it up or certainly prepared well, certainly in the case of. Hannes, um, there he the frequently prepares quite well for these interactions. Um, but you still have these 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 moments of kind of earnest in the transcript of like uh, I, I I don't have that in front of me, but but I, but if you'd like, I could I could go and look that up. Um, and and that sort of light like I've, I've prepped for this, and yet and yet here we are trying to come up with some something <laughs> to say, um, even though I am quite prepared, is a fascinating fascinating overlap and a fascinating thing to step into as an actor and cool cool that you kind of like a cool tool to say okay to accomplish that let's try just reading it and seeing how you looking down and having to pop back up <laughs> between every every line is it generates that sort of uh preparedness but not necessarily um scripted or plannedness yeah, I, it's that is truly a fascinating suggestion for the staging of this show. I'm interested in staging the show just to see how that goes. Yeah, <laughs> just because I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the show all over. I think it's fascinating, interesting, truly one of the more memorable things I've read recently. But I'm also just very interested in the practicality and the lived experience of doing a show in that way and what that ends up meaning and being and feeling like for the actors again it comes from that what i've learned is just this incredible theatrical imagination of Ariane moi and so we we've talked about like oh the you know courtrooms are often boring they are you know this particular legal issue that this play centers around is kind of an obscure one it has to do with like the definition of whether something can or can't be used and a particular type of proceeding but what i think drives your engagement in it is that this play has what fiction also has which is incredibly high stakes and i mean the plight of elizabeth and her family is so near and dear to the experience of the play the helplessness that they are faced with and after having navigated the maze of the immigration system and now you come to a whole new maze of the judicial system where words don't mean the same thing anymore where something that you could say to defend yourself in one courtroom you can't say to defend yourself in another courtroom just because they're different kinds of courtrooms right <laughs> yeah absolutely the 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 uh, you, you start it starts to like sink home the 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 morass of of this for them um uh pretty pretty quickly in the first scene and i think and i think there's an interesting beat we've already talked a little bit about how sympathetic everyone is to the plight of these characters and it, and it, and i think that's another that's another important bit in that first act of like both the audience and the actors or the characters in the play kind of have this moment of like Gosh, you guys are nice, and there's, there's, <laughs> this is this is all such a struggle that you're going through, um, and and you kind of feel that weight both both as the audience members, but also in the performance of the the characters as well, who 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 are weighted down as well with the with the uh, the call to respect the legal code while also seeing the the effect that it's having on this couple. 
Yeah, the judge that presides over the immigration trial, which is the first act, uh, the this is going to be complicated to say. The lawyer, <laughs> then in the second act, part of his argument to the appeal court is, you can tell from that judge's decision from the immigration court that they actually wanted to vote this way and just felt like they couldn't because the case law on whether this argument for criminal defense can apply in a civil trial, they had to decide against it because they didn't know and sort of send that up to the appeal court. So you get this sort of swirl of helplessness. Um, and then in, in the face of that, this kind of inspiring dogged determination for this lawyer and, and Elizabeth and her family to pursue the sort of right thing in this situation. And not only is it right for them to be able to stay because of the kind of people that Elizabeth is, the kind of person Elizabeth is rather, but also the lawyer makes the argument, which I think becomes so crystal clear by the end of the play, so clear that it's also, it almost seems frustrating that it's not obvious. In order to deport Elizabeth in those immigration proceedings, she has to have committed a crime. That, that's the law. You can't vote illegally, basically. Uh, but because it's a civil trial, she can't present defenses that she would be able to present if she were being charged with a crime. Right. And that becomes sort of the crux of the argument. If this civil case depends on her having committed a crime, why can't we use defenses that we would use in a criminal court here to discuss the nature of her having committed a crime? And by the right. end of it, you're just like banging your head in the wall like, <laughs> this seems obvious. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's one of those. It's 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 one of those reads. At least it'd be really. In, I really hope to go see this somewhere, and maybe even try to pull it off somewhere. But it's one of those reads that like, just you, you you're flowing along and you kind of get it. You're kind of following, and then then it hits one of those stages where it's like it's really showing off how complex this whole thing is. And you 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 do you but you you imagine banging your head against the wall or throwing up your hands, and and then then the, just the reality of it sets in the reality that you know this this play is telling the story a very very real story very real story of this woman certainly but so many other people who are who are engaging the immigration system and so so the 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 kind of the fullness of that impact and the the sort of way that this play brings it to the forefront is such an important experience um and and so so uh, such a vital thing that theater can do again like yes uh, you mentioned that this 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 play this play was kind of turned into a film and and brought around but the I feel like theater has has this little bit of of uh, sovereignty over this space just a little bit. Theater can stand in in this sort of like uh, we, we can we can say things, uh, real stories about real people that like film can't in some ways. And film does a good job at telling stories, real people stories too. But the 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 way that this play pulls it off using the whole theatrical catalog to to bring bring it into into its full effect is something really special about theater and special about oral histories and reenactments and and kind of real event theater that is just cool to see pulled off. And and also I think different I mean I haven't seen the film again I hope to because I think you can rent it online and I just want to see it. But I, I one other difference between the film and and the live staged theater rather than film version of this is the audience experience, right? The being in the same room. In fact, I, my understanding of the staging because it's a reenactment is that the lawyers really would face away from you. 
towards the judges for the majority of the play. So that, that's part of the audience experience, right? Sometimes you talk about that in a different kind of theater as keyhole naturalism, right? We're not trying to play towards the audience. But then there's also like the when the bailiff says everybody should rise. There's the naturalization ceremony at the end where the judge is supposed to say, we are all gathered here today, this number of people, and it's the number of people that bought tickets for the show, as if everyone is here to be naturalized. Everyone stands and takes this citizen vow that the judge offers. And that is just, I, I, I don't know because I haven't seen it, but I doubt very seriously that the film can capture that part of what this unique theater event would be like. There's so much more we could talk about. As always, this this play and and really really any of the plays we talk about generate such great conversation, both uh, for for the podcast certainly, but also for just just like for you to to talk about after having seen the play, read the play, etc. So while while we are winding down our conversation, we're out of time for this episode. The conversation doesn't have to stop fully. We'd love to keep chatting about the courtroom with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScript Podcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. If you find us on any of those sites, we'd love to keep talking about it with you. We'd also love to kind of keep fostering the space for people to kind of have conversation with each other. If you are a play reader or just a play enjoyer and are looking for people to talk about it with, these are all great spots to do it and we'd love to keep chatting chatting about it with you. Absolutely. Hey, theme month is just a couple of weeks away. Yeah. That is coming in March of 2023. If you're following along as the episodes come out again, just a few episodes from now, we will be diving into mini month part two. We'll talk about four short plays. Uh, that's always a great joy to do our theme month every season and to look at some plays that are not this particular length. Although this play is sort of a short play, but I don't think it would qualify. Right. He was axed from short play, but no, short know, play didn't consider it. <laughs> <laughs> if yeah. you liked this episode or any of our other episodes, please reach out to us. Uh, you can also recommend the podcast to your family and friends. Podbean is where we're hosted, but we are on all of your favorites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, YouTube, and places like that. Like us on Facebook, and a new a link will appear every Monday for the new episode as they are published. So until that moment when the link comes up and we are talking about another script, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script. <laughs>